Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The media is full of stories about robots taking over our jobs. But how likely is that really? How will we make money in the future? And what might our jobs and workplaces look like? And how will people whose jobs are replaced survive? I'm Megan Whelan, and this is Great Ideas. Last season, we looked at the revolutionary ideas of the past. This time round, we're asking what the great ideas of the future will be. We'll look at leisure and families and what's happening to our biggest city. This episode, though, the future of work. I'm joined by three knowledgeable people from AUT, and I've asked them to tell us their first job. Oh, hi, Megan. Uh, well, my name's Dave Parry. I'm the head of Department of Community Science, and uh, my first job was actually being a chambermaid in, uh, in London. Kia ora. Uh, Jared Har, I'm a professor of human resource management. My first job was the traditional delivering pamphlets. And I'm Stephen Neville, I'm Head of Department for Nursing and the President of the New Zealand Association of Gerontology, and my first job was working for a racehorse trainer. Mucking out stables and things like that. Yep, you got it. So two of those jobs, at least, feel like jobs that couldn't possibly be replaced, chambermaid and mucking out stables. Both of those things, it feels like getting a robot, well, I suppose you could get a robot to clean a room. Yeah, you could. I mean, one of the things is that you change the room to fit the robot as well as changing the robot to fit the room. And I think that one of the things that people got very good at is changing their behaviours according to technology. And I think that the key indicator of that is the fact that nobody on this planet ever turns up on time for anything anymore because you can always text, say, be five minutes late. This is the second recording of Great Ideas and this is the second time people have complained about people being late because of smartphones. This appears to be some kind of rash of unpunctuality. Yeah, I think so. The other thing, though, I think it also deals a lot with uh, social anxiety as well. So what you do when you're not talking to somebody is you play with your phone. But but I think one of the things that, that we do very well as humans is start to adapt to technology that's present in our, in our homes and in our workplaces. Uh, and we do that in ways which maybe the designers didn't anticipate. Um, you think of all the ways that people use toasters to sort of dry gloves out and things like that. Possibly not a great idea, but people do it. And so if we had a robot chambermaid, for example, then assuming the price of the room goes down by enough, then yeah, sure, you could have a, a room that would sort of effectively self-clean itself if that's something that you wanted. They can mechanise um, training racehorses, though. They'll put them on an automatic walker. Yeah. or They do that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, it's it's no different really. Although the whole idea of, um, I mean, already in house cleaning, you've got those motorised vacuum cleaners. Mm-hmm. You've got to be careful. A friend of ours um, had one going and they had a new puppy and it pooped on the floor. And of course, the motorised vacuum cleaner picked it up and spread it all around the house. So I think you'd have to be pretty careful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I guess this is the uh, one of the articles I was reading and preparing for this, Jared, was this idea that actually 
The way to survive the coming robot apocalypse is actually for people to become more human. So robots can do all the things, but there's going to need to be people to exercise judgment about not picking up the poop and spreading it all over the floor. Although um, an IT person would probably just suggest we just need to write a better algorithm for the robot. You know, if if X equals poop, do not clean. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and so the human side of thing is important. I, I have done research on people and their fear of the robot apocalypse, if you, as you've called it. Um, less anxiety out there than we might otherwise think. Just so you're in the minority, although you might be an a you know, you might be a smart minority. I don't know. <laughs> so people do people think robots are gonna take over their jobs? Us about ten to fifteen percent was out so that's in New Zealand and we've done similar research in Australia and, and America and a similar proportion. Fairly small thinking, oh maybe my job could be replaced. Um, ironically what we've found is on the one study that's looked at a whole number of professions, those that are most likely to be replaced, those people that think it's impossible that their job will be replaced. I'm a bartender. I create things. I'm a psychologist. I'm a relationship advice person. And there are already robot bartenders in Japan, for example. Um, and the, those jobs that are far more human orientated, those are the thinkers who are aware, at least a little bit in their mind, maybe robots will take my job. And they're actually over-worried about it. You know, the CEOs, for example, are like, they're like 0.01% chance of being replaced, and yet we find kind of they, they think maybe, you know, 10 20% chance right. of being replaced. Are people comfortable with the idea that they're going to be replaced? Do, do they want that to happen? Because I can see there are parts of my job that easily a, a bot could do. Um, so I read the Facebook comments for a living, for example. Facebook could absolutely create a bot that would read the Facebook comments for me. Actually, mm. absolutely certain Facebook has already built this uh, technology, just haven't released it. So that part of my job, totally happy for them to do. Lots of parts of my job I'd be a bit like, I don't want a robot to do Like I like doing that part. So even though it's small, those who, who are worried about job replacement through robotics or technology or... AI are more likely to be anxious and, and depressed and like their job less and, and think about changing jobs. And if we're trying to secure scarce human resources, that's actually not a good thing. We don't want people leaving thinking, oh, you might replace me with a robot when that may not be the employer's perspective at all. It feels like, and actually there was a, a New York Times article in 1992 that pointed this out, that about 1970 in the US, the hours of work went up, has started, after declining, had started going up. After World War II, people talked about the fact that everyone would go down to working 35 hours a week. We have not done that. The idea was that we would have far too much leisure time and we'd all lose our minds because we'd be bored and wouldn't know what to do, which we already discussed in the leisure episode of Great Ideas. But... What's going to happen? Um, I'm going to throw this at you, Stephen. What's going to happen here? Are um, as technology improves and robots can do things, or technology can do things, are we going to work less, or are we just going to fill up our work time with more stuff to do? Well, I mean, I'll answer as a head of department is that I think that there are lots of pressures for staff around, for example, being research active. So the stuff that ro robots, if you like, or bots can actually do um, as part of a lecturer's job um, will free them up to do other things. But I mean, I think you have to also think about the consumer at the other end. So if we look at education, for example, there uh, students do actually want us to be more technologically savvy and have less presence in a classroom to a certain extent, but then they do actually want us to be available should they actually want human 
contact, mm. you know, so I think that that's really important. Could you design an algorithm to mark essays? Uh, oh, people already do. Yeah. Uh, the um, Some of the uh, graduate entry essays that are in the States are now machine marked. Uh, and there will be some samples taken out, but most of them will be marked by machine. And so how does that work? Okay, so so of course one of the first things you do is you don't tell everybody how it works because because then you, you build another machine to write the essay that right. gets with. But uh, effectively what it's looking for is complexity of structure. Um, and so they're looking at uh, the structure of the essay, uh, looking to see that you, you, you appear to be building up arguments, that the, the words that you're using seem to be appropriate to what you're talking about, um, and then you've got a sort of conclusion structure and some sort of debating structure in the middle. Um, and in fact, you know, that, that can fit the human marker very, very well. And they're pretty much as good as human markers of that sort of thing. Because there is apps on the internet now that you can get to check your grammar, for example. I think it's is it Grammarly that yep, you can absolutely. get to, to, yep. to, I know some of the journalists yep. here use it every once in a while to pass their stories through to, to make sure that they are using the right grammar. Does that mean we're going to lose the ability, are people losing the ability to do that for themselves? It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, what, this is something that, that has sort of been uh, focused on. I mean, one of the issues that we've had looking at people using search engines, for example, is that search engines have got better and better at sort of taking what you write and sort of answering what you mean. And that, that, that of course, then degrades the quality of the questions that you're asking. If you never get punished for asking a silly question, then you keep answering, asking them. However, I think that language is particularly uh, interesting because in many ways the complexity of language for grammar is that we know instinctively what the rules are, we just don't know how to express them and we don't know how to apply them maybe in, in very novel situations. So if there are a set of rules, then, then computing is a very obvious way to go and, go and automate that. You know, if, if we can write down the rules, then we can automate it. You should still know how to use an apostrophe. Um, <laughs> Jared, you mentioned that the, the people who are most likely to have their jobs replaced are the ones who are not worried about it. Who are those people? What are the jobs that are most likely to be replaced? So service sector, so obviously fast food operators, and we already see that. We go into the shop, we do it on a screen, we scan our visa and we just, you know, it gives us a number. I don't know if it needs a number. You know, surely I can scan it and it'll go har. And yeah. up comes the har order and I just go and get it. Not four, one, oh, I've got the number wrong. Or scan your face and the, the, the computer can just point it at the right person. And I think in the future we'll see I'll walk near McDonald's and it'll say, actually, we're in the 11.30 to 1.30 range that Jared eats. And Jared, are you, are you ready to put your order in? And I'll go, oh, yeah, okay. Yes, ding. And so by the time I walk in the door, my order's already there because it did it three minutes out because the technology is now helping me make decisions. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying eating McDonald's daily is a good thing, um, but we'll, it could be. We'll get that to in the future of food episode. <laughs> the, um, so, I mean, we already have that. I know my phone uh, knows what time of the day I might catch the bus. So when I do that thing where I swipe down on my phone and it suggests apps to me, it comes up with the MetLink app um, because it knows that I might be looking to see what time the bus is. I genuinely find that terrifying. Yeah. So the phone's an interesting one because Foxconn, that makes most of our our iPhones and Samsung phones in China, replace their replace sixty thousand of their hundred and ten thousand workforce with robots to help do all those horrible all little, little tiny, uh, you know, those production line jobs that was just screeds of people, and now we have robots doing those things. And interestingly, when they first announced it, they said we're not getting rid of those sixty thousand workers. We will 
work to find other places for them. And then six months later, I read the latest press release saying, yes, they are all gone. They're all and gone. They have we have not, yeah, Sorry. have not found. Because I was thinking, yeah. it's pretty hard to find 60,000 other jobs. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so service workers. Yes, yeah, so production lines, service workers, food. I think, well, food could at least be, you know, portions of food could be sped up. You know, and if you think about fast food, you know, we might have the, the store manager might be the only employee and that might be a computer tech person who makes sure the technology is doing everything you know stocks get low gets automatically um, ordered and the automatic robot driver picks it up and the automatic robot loads it in the you know in the storage facility brings it out so there's no drivers there there's no cook there's no hardly anybody but someone is going to need to be able to fix the robots well those computer IT Engineer people will tell us that they'll never break down. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone who's had a smartphone knows that that's that's not at all true. Okay, but what happens, um, Stephen, to the people who lose their jobs, the 60,000 people who lost their jobs in the the iPhone factory? What happens to them in this future? Well, I suppose it's exactly the same in terms of things like um, older workers, um, for example, is that we we actually do need workers and it's about reskilling, retraining, providing people with... Um, other opportunities for employment. And I, I think that there will always be opportunities for, for employment. And if you look in terms of health, for example, um, robots are already being used in residential aged care facilities really successfully, um, but you still need that person-to-person contact, you know, that, that touch, yep. you know, and caring, and that, some of those central components of caring. So yeah, I think that there will always be work. Mm. Robots are also used a lot in, in healthcare, just, well not Absolutely. robots, actually technology generally, yeah. you know, remote operations and all those sorts of things yeah. that has greatly improved the quality of healthcare. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think from a healthcare point of view, the important thing at the end of the day is consumer or patient safety. So if, if we can develop mechanisms and algorithms and all of that kind of stuff so that at the end of the day, the person that's receiving care or some technological assistant um, is safe. I was at a talk a while ago at a conference and they talked about the fact that we're not really that far away from being able to remotely diagnose someone. So you mm. do yourself a blood test and the blood test can tell what's wrong with you and then remotely um, uh prescribe medication for you so and, and or uh, develop a system whereby, in fact, the water that you drink out of the tap in your house would have the medication in it that you need or something along those lines. So, you know, are we going to get to a situation where there's a vending machine for your health care and you will never need to go and see a doctor? Well, I mean, just pick, picking up on the point around the whole remote diagnosis, I think that that's a fantastic technological advance because it means that people that live in rural and remote areas can ex- easily access um, health care and get really timely um, interventions. So, I th- I mean, again, I think any of those technologies are great technologies that we should be um, embracing um, going forward. But we'll still need people at the end of it to be able to provide that kind of human-to-human touch and connection. There is, though, Dave, with something like that, um, tremendous privacy and security issues around something like that. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think that one of the, the issues that I think we are going to have to deal with uh, time going by is is what does privacy mean? 
Um, so as you said yourself about, you know, your phone knows that you're going to get the plane, so it starts nagging you to get out of bed sort of thing. To what degree are we prepared to sacrifice what we think of as privacy? Or do we have to change what we mean? Do we have to say, instead of saying that the privacy is a sort of absence of knowledge about others' activities, but privacy is actually an acceptance of others' activities? That, that it, you know, yeah, sure, I can find out what you're doing, but but I can't tell you off about it or I can't criticise you socially for it. Uh, because ultimately, all these systems collect data about people, which if you're uh, clever and you, and you put it together, you can build a very detailed picture of how people are behaving. Um, I think one of the things that's very interesting at the moment is, is if you look at the big providers like Google and Facebook, it, is that they've sort of captured all this data without really being challenged on it at all. Um, and so the, this data is immensely valuable uh, for for people themselves, but also for other companies. Uh, and yet we're allowing these sort of walled gardens to, to keep it and, and they don't release it for research anymore. Um, and they don't certainly don't sell it or allow governments to see it. Uh, and I suspect that in the next five to 10 years that governments will start to actually look at this and say, well, look, actually, we need to either have competition or uh, we need to enforce sharing of data. Um, that is also going to work against that model of privacy because we still have this idea of privacy being um, an organisational, a, a person knows something about you. Now, if this organisational person is just adding to this sort of cloud of knowledge about you, who's responsible for that privacy? Well, I actually think that it's already started to change. So privacy to me always meant um, the things I allowed other people to know. So when, when mm. you talk about Facebook privacy, oftentimes you would talk about the things that you yourself put onto um, onto Facebook, whereas I think what Facebook uh, especially, but, but Google probably even more opaquely does is they collect all this data but we don't know where it goes so we as a consumer have no concept of I don't I have no idea how much what Facebook where my Facebook data is going I know it's going to advertisers not my specific Facebook data but my um, you know a woman in her 30s mm. who clicks on these links I think they've already started to change what we mean by privacy a little bit oh look absolutely I mean the, 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 there's an awful lot of research in computing uh, about this sort of thing uh, uh, but if you go, there's a website called uh, Apply Secret Source, uh, which is uh, University of Cambridge. And they build a profile of you based on your uh, Facebook likes and followings. Not, not, nothing about what you yourself have declared. It's entirely about, entirely about your behaviour on Facebook. Um, it's not I actually great. did it. And it was terrifyingly accurate. I think that one of the things that, that keeps coming out with, with this sort of, um, I suppose, computational behaviour... Uh, study is that is that people are relatively predictable, uh, and that one of the things that um, certainly happened, for example, with uh, things like loyalty cards in supermarkets, is the deals have got much much worse in the last five to ten years. And one of the reasons is they can identify you from your shopping basket, so um, people buy the same sort of stuff, um, and so these sort of uh, machine learning techniques and sort of deep learning techniques can start pulling out individuals from from a mass of data which you wouldn't necessarily see as private. Um, you know, it could even, you know, even things like sort of your, your use of the bus or uh, when you put the bin out or all these other things um, can easily identify you. So, so we have to decide as a society whether we're going to keep this idea of privacy as, as, as you say, um, restricting what what's shared directly to whether there's a, a vagueness about people within this data cloud or whether we just accept it and just say, we know a lot about you, but we're not going to comment on it. What might uh, 
going to work look like in 50 years? I turn up at my office and I sit down at my desk and I log into my computer and I talk to my colleagues. And then you're fired (laughs) because the server does a sweep every Friday and they go, actually, in the last five days, you've spent 4.5 hours in total with your fingers on the keyboard working. And we notice that you spend so much time clicking on non-work related activities that you're not a productive member of staff and we're letting you go. Because that's what I was thinking with all this Mm -hmm. data there. I was thinking, oh, in an organizational setting, there are, you know, productivity issues um, it might go the other way, and it might say to academics working sixty plus hours a week, it might say, "Jared, we're freezing you out of the out of your laptop for the next twenty four hours. You're you're at risk of burnout, according to the health professional algorithm, but trying to look after your well being. So that might be a positive outcome. Yeah, I mean, some people have that sort of thing on their on their computer already. So apps mm. like where uh, it won't let you get into your social media for an hour so you can actually get some work done. Or uh, apps that remind you to take a micro pause every two hours that says stand up and walk around your office so, so that you don't fall asleep or, you know, your limbs don't fall off. So we already have a bit of this. But there's a real dark side to this is your boss could literally track your eye movements to see where you're looking at the day. And if you're not looking at your screen, uh, it you get fired. Well, I mean, as a as as a boss, um, I don't actually care or mind what or how or where staff work as long as they actually do the work. But equally, I, th- I think in the future our workplaces will look different. I think I was reading somewhere recently whereby by day a workplace might be like an office and by night it changes its function into something else and the desk disappears, the desk disappears, and it becomes, I don't know, a nightclub. Yeah, bar or what, whatever, you know. I, I mean, mean, some workplaces do that anyway, regardless. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. Right. But what, so Jared, I, I think um, you said that there'll be lots more sharing spaces. We won't turn up to work. Um, sorry, Dave, we won't turn up to work uh, in our office because so many people will re- work remotely. So many people will work, you know, down at their local cafe uh, or at home. Uh, and there'll be lots more shared spaces. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, it's enormous cost building offices and having people in them for sort of maybe a third of the 24 hours. Um, We've also got clearly transport issues. Um, There's no point thinking autonomous vehicles going to solve anything if everybody still needs to get to work at nine o'clock. And I think that that we will start to to, to be able to, to move and have the same sort of connectivity anywhere that we are. And if you look at uh, the younger generation, um, really there's there's no difference between the way that they communicate with uh, texting or messaging and face-to-face communication. You have, you, you know, they have, they're able to distinguish between the formal methods of communication and just informal chat and just sort of shooting the breeze sort of thing. So that idea of needing that to go to the office in order to sort of find out what other people are thinking and be able to collaborate and be able to work on something is is really going to go. I, I don't think that, that we'll see these offices as they are in the next 50 years simply because they're, they'll be too expensive and people will be saying, well, why why do I have to come here when I can do the job equally well, um, you know, on my beach house or whatever? I mean, I, I think that's, that's a really important point because I think that a workplace needs to suit the personality of the worker. If you want the best productivity, 
from a worker, you need to provide a workplace that's appropriate for them. And if you think about wanting um, to engage parents, for example, with young children, being able to have flexible working times and places for them, I think it's really important, and exactly the same for older workers. You know, there is no doubt that we are going to need people to work longer. And so I I think we need to accommodate all of the different personality um, working styles. As a baby boomer, I like to come to the office every day. That is the way that I'm most productive. I'm not productive at home. But I have staff that much prefer to work at home and they get a lot more done. So I I think we should be flexible. There's a bunch of infrastructure required there, though. Everyone's got to have really good internet access. Uh, Everyone's got to have a decent laptop. Everyone's got to have all those sorts of things. So we've got to make sure that there's sort of if people are going to be able to work at home, at, at the very least, good internet access. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, internet access is, is not yet officially a human right, but it's not very far off being that. I think I'd be very surprised if in New Zealand within the next five to ten years it's not seen as uh, a basic component of citizenship. Um, so that's really, I mean, that, that's a technical problem. We can solve those technical problems. I think far more um, difficult will be the fact that you have to have attention at work. And if, you're, if you are at home, then, of course, you've got to put the cat out and you've got all the other things as well. Um, and I think the other thing will be that social isolation. And I think that if you choose to work at home, that's one thing. But if you're forced to work from home, I think that there will be people who have a lot, great deal of issues with that. Um, in terms of their social life, in terms of their sort of feeling valued in society. One of the things we talked about in the, the the Future of Leisure episode was whether or not work and play are antithetical. And uh, you're all academic, so I suspect you all love your jobs very much and feel like you do spend a lot of time playing at work. But if uh, robots do the sort of jobs that we don't like, is there scope for more people to love their jobs or am I being very Pollyanna about how this might work? I like it. <clears throat> I think that's a, that's a great point. If um, Meaningful work is, is very important and academics and nursing, for example, are professions where we might get lots of meaning in what we do. And if you could get rid of those horrible and efficient meetings from an academic's perspective and maybe, you know, four days worth of marking that probably tries every academic. And, you know, maybe if I'm just doing, you know, routine checking of the of the program instead, that would give you more time to do face to, you know, face to face online. Um, you know, what is it, an avatar meeting with students, students or whatever, you know, better use of your time rather. I don't think my time is spent well marking 200 exams versus talking to five PhD students. Those are better things to do. So I think that's a great option to enhance meaningful work well-being um, from a worker's perspective, yeah. For someone who's not an academic, though, for someone who's a forestry worker, is is the the future that, that rosy? It might be for forestry workers because they have high death rates uh, and, and, you know, dangerous places to work. So robots might even be... Um, I mean, they, you know, they may be a companion tool. It might be a safety tool that keeps you alive when your colleague accidentally chops a tree in the wrong direction and it falls on you or something, because those things do happen. So, but I agree that there, there are, you know, these are where we are talking more the professional, I don't want to say professional elite, but the professional workers, I think, you know, and, and those at the lower end of the skill and payment things may... Fast food workers aren't going, yay, a robot's going to make my life better. No, they're going to make my life unemployed and I'm going to have to. And there was a guy in the, in the newspaper yesterday talking about his part-time career as a 23-year-old working in fast food restaurants. And I was thinking, gosh, 
at 23, poor, you know, poor guy. He, in, in Dunedin, he wasn't, he wasn't overly happy about that. So do we need, I guess, uh, does the government or some kind of governance need to start thinking now about what's going to happen to those people whose jobs are going? I think so, definitely. I think that it's um, we can't expect that the sort of industrial model of, of work, working, which has been going for what two hundred years or so, is going to continue uh, into the future. There simply aren't going to be these giant monolithic employers who have a for requirement for sort of you know twenty people assorted to turn up and do stuff. Um, we do start need to start thinking about how we're going to. Um, educate the the population. I think one of the things that we do at the moment in education is basically we use it as a sifting process to get rid of the people who who we can't take through to the next stage. Um, And we need to to optimally educate people. Um, And then we also need to look at how we can support people so that um, we're not focusing on looking as though they should be parts of this big cogs of the machine, uh, but somehow they failed it, so we've got to change change what they're doing. I think there's a lot of opportunities for... um, and I hate the word, but artisanal type work, um, because it, once you start getting into that, so when you start looking at forestry or start looking at gardening or whatever, you can see that there'd be an awful lot of uh, jobs available for people to go off and do sort of highly, highly sort of personal, but yet not sort of enormously uh, maybe skilled or in terms of long term professional development jobs which actually make people's lives better. So I would really like it if somebody came around and sorted out my my vegetable patch Um and did it in a way that was actually interesting and useful and they had their creativity involved with that. Uh, or you could stand there with your iPad showing them a video of your video patch because they're in Timbuktu uh, and they could say, oh, yeah, okay, so what you need to do, uh, you could have a conversation. They don't actually have to come around and sort it out. They can show you how to do it remotely. Or, or they get the drone to do it. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, I've just, I've just carried you <clears throat> through, uh, you know, Amazon that parachuted in the package that has the drone, it'll actually unpack itself for you and it'll, and I'm just, I'm feeding its commands by looking at your live stream and going, actually, and I haven't even bothered with your iPad, I've just connected into your security camera and just turned it onto the patch and said, hey, just give me access for 24 hours because that's all I need and I'll, I'll ask for access in a week's time when when I think my program's done. Because once I've got a drone in there, it'll have live feed. I'm just tapped into your internet, by the way. Thank you very much. So you sound really chirpy saying all of that. <laughs> and I'm just sitting here going, this all sounds terrifying. I'm, I've read too much dystopian fiction. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Stephen, what do employers have to think about? What do they need to be thinking about in 2017 uh, going forward into the future? I just said going forward. Forgive me. I I think employers need to be um, flexible. I think they need to be innovative. I think they need to um, listen and understand the other generations that are are going to be um, uh, coming forward. I think um, they need to be open to other possibilities, which includes the use of um, technology. Because I think um, working today, technology has enabled us to provide far more complex services, and, I th- and I'm thinking of this in terms of health, for example. And so the role, my discipline background is as a nurse, so the role of a nurse um, and the things that a nurse will see and experience as part of their working day, I think is quite stressful. And so being able to have a resilient workforce, a flexible workforce, um, and a workforce that likes what they do, I think is really important moving forward. Mm. What do employees need to think about, Jared? 
I just I got one caveat on the employer and the technology is so for example the the robots are making our iPhones and Samsungs they're making they're reducing the cost of labor and our yet the price of those products keep going up so technology is being used from a capitalistic perspective to make more money for shareholders not to make um our products cheaper for consumers. So I think there's that caveat in there. And so I think a good employer should also be considering the well-being of employing humans and thinking, you know, this is a societal good. So we should celebrate the fact that in New Zealand and the warehouse have 10,000 plus employees and we should be saying, doing a great job and please keep employing those humans and keep uh, our citizens working, paying tax, keeping them mentally healthy because I think those are important things. And if everything became... To technology-wise, we will have less employees, um, and that may be a societal issue. What do employees need to do? I think embracing technology, ironically, is not fight against it, but uh, embrace it. And I think one of the good things in the education system now, trying to bring coding in for young people, I think this is a natural thing. So I could be an HR person who does, you know, who can code. And my nine-year-old over there, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that one day his love of technology and coding might provide him employment, might provide him to do something he loves, whether it's forestry or gardens or whatever, and doing it with an IT bent. So, yeah, I will say this is the first time I've ever recorded something with a nine-year-old in the studio mm. playing on his iPad, which yeah. is just <laughs> totally the, the sign of the future. Hey, um, he hasn't made uh, a noise. What, is, what does the nine-year-old need to think about? Oh, be flexible, yep. be interested. Yep. And I think that the, the, the one of the things that's going to happen is that uh, already in the world of sport, everybody's aware that there's always somebody better than you, Nish or Usain Bolt. So you have to be uh, focusing on things that, that are you're, you can do and that you're good at and you're interested. That The general, okay, I've done generally well in lots of different areas, but I've got no passion, is going to start looking very, very stale in the future. I think you have to start finding your your niche or niches as early as possible and then uh, accept the fact that all of the knowledge in the world is actually available to you at the press of a button. So so you can't argue that you can't get access to this knowledge anymore. Um, so get passionate about things and work at things that you know you can, you would like to do and that you'll be good at. And also making sure that people have the choice in some way that if they can't make a living at their passion, uh, that they have a job that they can make a living at and do their passion outside of work. Yeah, that's right. I think um, uh, it's going to be... I, I do think, though, that the governments and, and the society are going to hit this um, big issue with just simply the number of people who are going to not really be required. Um, if you look at, um, you know, certainly my average day in terms of the number of emails I get, once you can get a reasonably smart email answering system... Um, a lot of those are just going to disappear. Now, a lot of people spend a lot of time on those emails, and um, I think that the sort of traditional office work of, of looking at documents and making a comment and sending it back can be automated fairly easily. I've come completely around with the suggestion that we could get rid of email. I no longer believe any of those dystopian stories. My thanks to uh, Stephen Neville, Professor Jared High and Associate Professor Dave Parry. Great Ideas is made in collaboration with AUT. Our sound engineer was Rangi Pawak and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. I'm Megan Whelan. You can find more great RNZ podcasts at rnz.co.nz on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Listener.